healthcare operations are so complicated, just giving a piece of software to an existing practice is really not going to cut this. It requires significant operational rethinking as well. It's not just about software adding to an existing location. So to me, it was, it, it is and still extremely obvious that you just need to be a full stack company to be able to disrupt healthcare in the way we want to do. I need some traction. You need some traction. Let's get some traction. Hey, what's up, innovators, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and disruptors? This is your Traction Podcast host, Lloyd Lobo. We're a community of over 100,000 people, just like yourself, on a mission to help you get the methods, the money, and the madness to explode your business growth. Featuring stories and tactical advice straight from those who've done it before, like Shopify, Twilio, Asana, and many more. This episode is brought to you by Boast.ai. Each year, the U.S. and Canadian governments give out billions of dollars in R&D tax credits and innovation incentives to fund businesses like yours. But the application process is cumbersome, prone to frustrating audits, and receiving the money can take up to 16 months. Boast.ai gets you access to research and development, tax credits, and innovation funding opportunities without the headache and red tape. Join thousands of North American companies leveraging Boast AI software to maximize cashback. Check out boast.ai. This episode is also brought to you by Launch Academy, an international tech hub that provides mentorship, resources, network, and the environment for entrepreneurs to launch, fund, and grow their startups. Since 2012, Launch Academy has incubated over 6,000 entrepreneurs, of which 300 have grown their startups past seed and series A and have collectively raised over $1.2 billion in funding. To learn more about Launch Academy's programs, check out launchacademy.ca. Fantastic topic here today, and I don't think any of us on the planet could find a better speaker for it, is how to disrupt two archaic industries and lessons learned from doing that. And Aaron Bali is a serial entrepreneur founding multiple companies. Currently, he's the CEO and co-founder of Carbon Health and leading its team towards his vision to democratize healthcare and make quality care accessible for everyone. Under Aaron's leadership, Carbon has grown its staff sevenfold since January, increased its clinic footprint from seven to 27 clinics across six states, introduced virtual care to 16 states and facilitated over 500,000 COVID tests. Prior to that, Erin paved the way to make education accessible by founding Udemy. And Udemy is the world's largest marketplace for online courses with over 50 million students worldwide. And in his youth, Aaron was a star mathematician winning awards in mathematics, physics, computer science, and chess including the International Mathematical Olympiads. And he still plays chess today and he loves it. And you unwind with chess after a long day, right? Yeah, I do actually. It's, it's funny. I, I have my rating. So my rating is like, it goes up to it if I can have time to play during the day. But then usually I have three small babies. I can only play after all of them sleep. So the more, if I play after midnight, I start losing my score. Like, so 
it's like you're playing competitive chess, like after midnight is not, is not a very good thing to do, but that's the only way I can relax after the end of the day. Awesome. And you, I think you have maybe some people saying Marhaba, Aaron. It looks like we have some Turkish. And I was, as I was saying, I was born in Kuwait. So Marhaba is a word we use in Arabic as well. Aaron, super excited because disrupting two archaic ancient industries yeah. and getting both those companies to hyper growth, there should have been a lot of lessons and I'm excited to get into all of them. But before that, how are you doing in Corona times? I think we are doing uh, we are doing well. So the reality is this is this pandemic has been devastating for the entire world. So you have to look at everything in a comparatively. Comparatively, we are doing really well. Our company, Carbon Health, kind of found itself in the front lines of it. Uh, so it has been a very extremely busy year. So like the, the things you mentioned, going from seven clinics to right now 40 or sorry 30 already, and going from 100 people to uh, like 800, those all happened in the last eight months. It's, uh, it has been busy, and Udemy, my other company, is also doing well, so I'm, I'm still chairman there. So, and I also, also have three small babies. So reality is like we were not going outside anyway, so it kind of didn't change our personal life that much because you're when you have three small babies, like one and two years old, like so that's really the majority of your time anyways. Yeah, definitely. I have two little kids as well, and, and yeah, and now we're homebound. Awesome. Udemy effectively pioneered a whole new industry and has been super successful, 50 million students worldwide. What made you decide to start Carbon Health, and what else did you consider? Yeah, so uh, I, I was always interested in education and healthcare, so the healthcare focus was not was already the plan. I, my sister is a physician, so that kind of helped. I did a, like a lot of conversations with her. Uh, so really, I think that I was I, I had maybe eight to ten different ideas in in and out of healthcare space. And most of the time, like my plan was to just maybe fund a company who can who's working on that field. And the reason I decided to start Carbon Health myself is there were a lot of technology companies in healthcare space, but I was really disappointed that they were all exclusively focused on this young affluent customer base. There were simply hundreds of startups competing to become the healthcare provider of choice or Google employees, but nobody was really building technology to help provide better care to an average teacher, average retail worker in this country. And that was really disappointing for me because those are the people who need the healthcare uh, improvement the most. And in reality, when you provide a better care with a much higher cost to an affluent customer base, that's really a hospitality business that, that doesn't even require that much technology. The place where you need the technology most is making care so efficient so that within the money already being spent, you can provide a really high quality health. So that, that is really to me like why technology even exists is like creating, reducing barriers to access. It's not just going to provide the more gimmicky experience to all the rich people. Uh, so I was essentially disappointed with the market not really, not having given a single like high quality tech startup targeting this problem that I can invest. So I said, and I realized this is actually, it's a fairly big undertaking. It's, it's not, it's you need the team who is both capable of building uh, a lot of hardcore technologies, but also doesn't mind getting their hands dirty. It doesn't like, because it's a re regulatory complex business, it's operationally complicated. So like for the tech 
founders who just want to just build some gadget like here and there and do some ML project. Like there are a lot of ideas for them, but it's kind of required with like the craziness, the, 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 the obsession to healthcare accessibility in addition to the technical capability. So then I really, I realized that there are really not that many teams who have, who, who have that overlap. So I decided to take, tackle this problem myself. And here's the other thing, like, and I also am a savvy entrepreneur as well. I also realized like, if somebody can actually build the de facto healthcare provider for the, for the mass market in this country, this could also become one of the world's largest companies. Like, if, so, if somebody, and this is what I told them, like a friend who asked me the same questions. I said, like, if somebody told me that in 10 years, the world's largest company would be a healthcare company, I would totally believe that. Because if you think about it, that just the primary care business in spending in the United States is bigger than the entire smartphone spending. So smartphone has market as companies like Google and Apple. So like the biggest healthcare company could actually become much larger than much larger than Apple, Amazon, Google today. 100% I agree and, and couldn't agree more. And in fact, a lot of my family members are in healthcare. My wife works at Stanford. And you see this is healthcare is not democratized in the US. What is your vision for carbon health? Like looking into the future four or five years from now. Yes. So then maybe starting from the early idea, right? So we are technology-enabled primary care providers. So we have clinics with urgent care, primary care, we have virtual care capabilities. So if if you look at how companies like Amazon, Uber, and Airbnb disrupted their respective service industries, right? Because disrupting a service industry is very different than disrupting, for example, the music industry. Right, because service it's a, it's a it's a different it's a different base. So what they really nailed is using a lot of technology and better operational design, service design to provide very high quality customer experiences at the same or lower cost with what exists before. But Amazon is both better experience, also like cheaper than pretty much any other way to buy it products. Similarly, Airbnb uses all this like the 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 hospitality of a home. But it's still cheaper than hotels. Uber is the same thing; it's better and lower, uh, lower cost than cabs. Uh, so first, like we said, is our our first chapter is how do we provide really high quality customer experience at the same or lower cost to what people are spending, and that's what we have done over the last four or five years. We we re-engineered every single aspect of care delivery, right? So from the first patient interact, interaction of the patient with the system, all the way to depth of clinical decision-making, care plan management, things like that. So we re-engineered everything from the ground up and we essentially own the entire technology stack between patient and provider. And this actually has never been done before. Like a lot of people have failed at things that look like carbon, that's partially because nobody is really tackled, like under two, nobody is really under two, like the entire tech stack from the ground up, we did. And the way we actually started is we opened a small primary care clinic inside the office, and I actually made it forbidden to even look at third-party healthcare software. So we truly started from the first principles in the design. Uh, so done this over the last four years. At this point, like the company's core tokenomics are just unbelievably strong. And we had this like very kind of massive kind of growth base. So we had seven clinics last year, and we now have 30. Next year, we'll have 150, so we have 120 clinics already actually at least signed in the process to become launched next year. And then by 2025, we'll likely have 1,500 locations nationwide. So we'll become by far the biggest primary care provider. 
So we are kind of we are surely kind of going through the like really rapid expansion. But this is actually what I mentioned, the largest primary care network. That's not even the end goal. But that's really the infrastructure we are building for modern healthcare system. So we the thought was that we just imagine what we want to healthcare to look like for an average person in this country, not just for the rich. And that meant like it's really strong technology in primary care, but also we are building networks or specialists and everything. So it will feel like almost like a Kaiser Permanente, but designed with technology from the beginning. So just we are building an entire network around it. And the, the primary care layer we are building is like the platform, but then we are building a lot of omnichannel care options from virtual care to at-home care, the device, the hardware integrated solutions. Uh, we are building more and more video-based solutions and actually also building the infrastructure for modern healthcare companies to operate on. If you want to build an amazing kidney care solution, you can actually build that with even carbon's underlying essential blocks, building blocks. That's a feature. Today we will both provide amazing care directly, but we also want to accelerate the transition to like modern care. So like today it takes 17 years to for uh, diagnostic improvement, for uh, therapeutic improvements to go to mass market. We just really want to accelerate that. Fantastic vision, and I wish you nothing but the best to, to realize it as soon as possible. But before we dive into some of the more uh, granular things that you've, you've done here, what were some of the key learnings from Udemy that you feel made you a much better entrepreneur today? Because for people who don't know here, Aaron moved from Turkey to, to the U.S. in 2010, and he was part of Founder Institute, and I think that's where you met your co-founders. So literally coming up with an idea, going to like a hackathon-style pre-accelerator with an idea and building a unicorn from there to mm -hmm. now building another one. What were your key learnings from Udemy? That was, it's not yeah. very conventional, right? Yes. Now, I, I think the... Probably the biggest learning was really just thinking very realistically about what the real problems are in the world and not getting stuck into the conventional capitalist thinking. So when we first started using it, it was a relatively simple idea, right? So we, there are hundreds of millions of people who just want to better their lives. And learning a new skill is typically a good starting point to just improving their lives. So it's very critical. So, but we build the platform so that people can easily teach and learn online. And the, the feedback from every single investor was that it is impossible to build an education business where the consumers are going to spend their own time, own money to learn a subject without a diploma attached to it. So most investors thought this was a crazy idea. Like they were saying like, nobody's gonna invest their own time, own money to learn. People only learn because like they have to get a certification, they have to get a diploma. Uh, like that's, that's really the only way to make business. So that's why like we had like, I don't know, maybe hundreds of investors passed on investing in the idea. And even if the, some of the investors who did invest, actually they thought they should still thought we wouldn't be able to make it work with consumers, but maybe thought they thinking was like, this might actually work in maybe enterprise. So, but I think to a lot of people surprised, we actually made, built the world's largest learning destination with the exact same idea that everybody thought was impossible. Because here's the thing. So all these people who said like, it's impossible to, for people to spend their own time and own money in learning. This is very easy to like books exist. Like people buy books 
and they will spend their own money and own time in learning a subject. And there's no like diploma attached to each book. So to me, it was crazy that they didn't like something as simple as the fact that if this is happening for books, wouldn't make sense to have better books, which are like online courses are objectively much better than books or learning a subject. You can put videos in it, you can put articles, assets, you can have a community around it. So it was so obvious to us. It was extremely unobvious to all the other investors. And honestly, even most of the people in the education space like thought this was a horrible idea. Uh, but it, it ends up became, becoming like when everyone thinks it's a, like a stupid idea and you think it's not, and you actually turn out to be right, that's actually the recipe to become a master to build a billion dollar plus company. So it's, you have to be somewhat controversial and right at the same time. And when I started with Carbon, it was actually a very similar situation. Uh, I, I just wrote an article about that that I'm going to publish next year, just going through the details of this. But so even though I had started a multi billion dollar company, we really struggled to raise money for carbon health because I was stuck upon the first principles. Like the first principle said, okay, you need to, you want to start this from the primary care services because that's a consumer decision. If you want to be in a market with better customer experience, you need to you need to be you need to be in a market which is a computer a consumer choice. It cannot be just a like a, a provider assigned to them from another angle. And then I was very convinced that there will always be a physical component to healthcare. So I don't see like pure telemedicine plays ever being like the dominant player. So at least like 70% of the care still requires some sort of physical interaction. And then lastly, healthcare operations are so complicated, just giving a piece of software to an existing practice is really not gonna cut this, right? This is, it requires significant operational rethinking as well. It's not just about software adding to an existing location. So to me, it was it, it is and still extremely obvious that you just need to be a full stack company to be able to disrupt healthcare in the way we want to do. And then this has to go for mass market, which means like you have to be able to accept insurance, you have to be able to have physical location, and you have to really improve the efficiency of technology. To me, all of these are just again, I don't like have a I don't have a moment of doubt in any of these things, but it was still like even though to me, just nothing else makes more sense, but all VCs, all investors, they hate brick and mortar. Like they don't want to invest in something which has physical locations. So there's still a really big uphill battle, even by despite being a, the founder of a multi-billion dollar company, like I just had like investors up there, investors pass on the idea because they thought it was capital intensive, which again, it was also stupid because Yes, like we have to spend money on opening clinics, right? But on in exchange, we actually spend almost no money acquiring customers. Like our customer acquisition rate, there are a ton of tech startups which spend hundreds of millions of dollars every year in digital acquisition to Facebook, Google. Investors just like gladly put money into just investors gladly give you billions of dollars to go with Google ads and Facebook ads, and they thought it was expensive to build clinics, which like in reality is not like we like. Opening a clinic less than a million dollars of cost, you open it, open thousands of them. Like it's just still not that much, all that much money compared to what you're building. So uh, essentially, this kind of like whenever majority of the people disagree with something which I see as I consider like extremely obvious, I get really excited because that's really a recipe for a massive company. What were some milestones you said? Because this is a lot of. I'm surprised actually that you said after building Udemy, a multi-billion-dollar company, you were having hard time 
uh, raising money from investors. I'm, I'm, I'm mind boggled here. So that, that could, as an entrepreneur, that could set you back mentally in a way, right? Hey, what am I wrestling against? Is there, is there really uh, something here or am I, is it a figment of my imagination? What yeah. milestones did you set when starting Carbon? Was there like a go, no go timeframe or you're like, no, this is all it? Yeah, it, it was all it. Like, the thing is, I think between us, the doctors, like people in the company, like saw the story clearly. Like we were not really self-doubting whether whether this is the right idea or not, right? So like we have such like strong conviction there, and we just made some iterations. Like initially, we were planning to partner with existing practices. We realized over time, you realize it doesn't make sense. We have to be full stack. Uh, so it was less about timing, but it was more about like the difficulty is eventually when your company is so large, like uh, people who the naysayers kind of change their minds, right? So like. You they made the naysayers, but at this point, when you have 50 million customers growing so fast, uh, and eventually they realize, like, of course, it makes sense to build a massive kind of learning destination. Of course, it makes sense to have everyone be like instructors. But in the early days, like this whole like nobody's going to spend their own time and money without a diploma. That that type of cynical view like that it disappears once you are growing fast. So at Carbon, the additional difficulty is that when you we knew that we can significantly improve the efficiency and quality of care delivery using technology. But this type of improvements that you build, like you see, you see you see early signs of promise, but it doesn't show up in unit economics until maybe three, four years of iterations. So, like you, for example, the moment we launched, like, like after two months, it was obviously we have amazing customer experience. But then why do you care about good customer experience? You have to just say, good customer experience brings higher retention. But if you, if you have only launched a service for three months and it's a healthcare service, right? So people don't use healthcare five times a month. So you just use maybe a couple of times a year. So you need to wait several years before you can prove that retention, like the better customer experience turns into better retention. Also, you want to prove that better customer experience turns into better word of mouth growth, which again, shows up like several years down the line. It doesn't immediately become visible in numbers. And then along the like, what is even retention with world? You have to eventually be able to argue that all these improvements you're making is significantly improving the unit economics of the individual physical location very significantly. So, so initially it's the theoretical suggestion that you'll be able to improve these margins with us in a significant ways. But then it, it took really three, four years before like you have all the operations, supply chain, the clinical opening, everything dialed down so much. Because like when you, what often happens is you, you build something which is much better in certain aspects, but then you're not really optimized like the kind of other like mundane details yet. So if you are worse than other companies in certain other kind of standard areas, really, because the book says you do a much better job in the things which are hard to do, and then usually do a shitty job in things which are easy to do. Like we are, you're doing a really good job with customer experience, retention, the technology, like the providers are really loving to be a part of it. But we were doing a poor job with uh, like a supply management and things like that, which, which we did not have, really have bandwidth to work on yet. So it, like it took several years before we just dialed down everything. And then now, like at this point by 2020, like even if you just don't ever look at the technology we beyond, even if you never install our application or Talk to a single day. You just look at the PL right now, you just understand what you have, what did you clear. But it, it, that took four years. You just kind of 
survive for four years until the numbers were undeniable. Because like when, there, when people don't fundamentally believe you have the right idea, you just need to prove that with numbers, and that does sometimes take a lot of iterations. Yeah, and so the key lesson here is when you're tackling and trying to disrupt a regulated industry like healthcare or education, it's it takes time, and you got to be patient, and you got to focus heavily on delivering a 10x customer experience. I guess. Yeah, exactly, and and the reality is, that if generally like. You do something which is already hype, like you build a machine learning startup today, or you build like even in healthcare, you build a telehealth startup. Like there's a lot of hype around it, right? So, so those there are certain things that are like hype subjects. If you do one of those things, it will be easy to raise money and like the world, the, the life is not very hard. But if you what you believe like kind of disagrees with the common set like investor sentiment, then you should you, you should just expect that this is going to be an uphill battle. And luckily, you only one or two like backers each time. So like you have one investor each time and you can keep going. So you, you won't have people get throwing your term shares and you won't have this ridiculous valuation necessarily while you're pulling things, but it doesn't, none of those matter. At the end of the day, what matters is, are you right? Are you going to be pulled right at the end of the, the day? That's really what matters. So probably that's what happened. Like it was four years of like uphill battle, kind of fighting our way to it. But then eventually at this point, it's so obvious. Like now it's just super obvious, right? To everybody. So yeah, I think it's again like sometimes like you sometimes you do something that agrees with the common sentiment and things are easy. Sometimes you don't, and like that, then you just have to put on a fight. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then I guess comparatively, Udemy, I think by the time you guys were four years in, you were already close to ten million or more. Right? In terms of like the users or revenue, yeah, users, yeah. Yeah, I think exactly like, like ten million users. It's a different situation. So like I said. Uh, is wanting to have somebody take an online course or something else to have an actual patient. Uh, yeah, the patient, there's further uh, trust, there's regulation, further regulation yeah. and whatnot. In your opinion, what are some key levers that you prioritize to scale the company 10x, like key things you did? Yeah, I, I think the most important one was building a product that has true like mass market appeal. So one of the other early challenges at Udemy was that like when we, maybe a couple of years after we started, Coursera and Udacity launched, and this concept of like massively, massively online kind of university courses became very popular. So essentially, the, the, the super hype subject was how do you just bring the Stanford machine learning course to uh, and make it more accessible like to everyone. So that was uh, like, it's not a bad idea. So there are definitely a lot of people around the world who would want to learn machine learning from a Stanford professor. But what we insisted on was like, that's a relatively small percentage of the world. Far more people need to learn some Excel so they can maybe take a kind of office job. They want to learn maybe some amount of like some basic programming skills to, to work at a, like a local development shop. So essentially the more daily practice, the main skills was actually, it was appealing to far more people than machine learning courses from Stanford professors. So we kind of, and that was a time where all of a sudden education was very like unsexy in 2010 when we launched, but then in 2012, 13, it became a very sexy subject, but only, ex but exclusively around the university kind of course concept. We insisted that just allowing average people to learn average skills was actually a far more impactful thing to do. We just 
stayed on course, focused, and that's really, I can honestly, like, there were a lot of growth tactics we applied and everything as such, but really at the end of the day, we grew fast because we had the, we had a product that was appealing to billions of people around the world, not just like a kind of small elite kind of group in around, around like Silicon Valley and maybe like other places. What made Udemy and then again at Carbon Health that you have product market fit? What are some key things you measured? I, I, I think like product market fit is one of those things where like when you have it, you know it. So if you're not sure you have, whether you have it, you probably don't have it. So I feel like I know there are some people that just say like ask your customers whether they would be disappointed if you shut down the service. Like I know there are like methodologies that people suggest, but it's actually a little more like subtle than that sometimes because you know that your your customers really love your product and they just they, they they're super appreciative of the fact that you're beyond that. So that's really really uh, what happens at Udemy. I think. We sold relatively early on in 2001, 11, one year after we launched. We, in the, when we first started, like people were producing some really low quality expanding course on Udemy. So we did not have product market fit back then. But then we launched a course called Raising Money for Startups. It was essentially teaching uh, like founders, mostly like at, around Founders Institute, how to raise your first angel capital, how to build a deck, how to talk to investors, things like that. It was a, really a tactical kind of step-by-step educated course. And we just distributed through, towards a newsletter. And we had, uh, I think, 100 people that buy that course at $30. So that's, that's $3,000 of revenue. It's not that much objectively. But I just realized that all these people who bought the course, they loved it. Like, we actually, like, we had ready to refund them and I thought they would actually maybe watch the first section and just say, this is not worth like territory dollars and ask for it. And nobody asked for a refund. And a lot of people said like, this is by far the best $3 they have ever spent. So that was actually the moment I realized, okay, there's product markets where people are, I mean, and here's the thing, like the reason I think that was particularly interesting is there is ridiculous amount of free entrepreneurial content already. Ton of people give like really fancy kind of video like conferences and other stuff like published on YouTube. There's so much free content about entrepreneurship, right? So, but for some reason, people still willingly wanted to pay thirty dollars for a course because it wasn't the kind of motivational bullshit BS. It was actually tactical learning around how to like how to send the cold cold email to an university, things like that. So, like that actually just. That one course we sold, like I got 100% convinced that Udemy was going to be a massive business at that, but just at the moment where uh, 100 people bought their course at $30. And then similarly at Carbon, mm-hmm. when did you realize you had product market fit? Because four, so comparatively at Udemy, you took four years to get to 10 million users. Yeah. Carbon mm-hmm. Health, it's been a four-year grind yeah. uh, and trying to get investors on board. But when did you realize you have product market fit? Yeah, after four years, uh, Carbon is a larger company, much larger company than Udemy was after four years. So technically, Carbon has grown a lot faster. Uh, so, but I think again, one month into our first product launch. So what we did is like we started a primary clinic inside the office. That was like the first version of the product. So in 2016, we started working on this. In September, we launched the clinic. And obviously, like the, the minimum viable product in healthcare versus education is very different at Udemy. You put some online videos and then you charge people uh, with a credit card transaction interface. That's the kind of viable product. 
At Carbon, we have to have a physical location, doctors, nurses, able to write prescriptions, able to submit lab requests, referrals, imaging. Like I said, far more kind of complex and human viable product. But we launched it in nine months regardless. And like we had both ourselves and our friends and family use the service. And like you, the moment you, even you use the first version of Carbon's product, it just became, became obvious. Like you use it and really realize there's no way I'm going to go back to just normal healthcare delivery. Because even in the first version, we made 100% of the onboarding, receiving your care plans, requesting, like talking to doctors, all done through your application. And that experience, the moment you get it, you realize it was so stupid that we had to fill out those long forms. Those long forms did not really go anywhere because like, they still ask the same questions again. Uh, like, and then and they, tell, they tell you what your care plan should be, but like you don't even have a good place to reference it. So like th- these things are relatively simple. Uh, at Carbon, the, the thing that spent a lot of, that thought, took a lot more time was dialing in the unit economics. So that's not just like product market is one thing, but the other thing is, we have a viable kind of business, kind of like business because like it's not too hard to, I could easily hire a bunch of doctors and have each doctor see five patients a day and provide amazing care. That actually is not very hard. So what is really hard is like having each doctor see 40 patients a day and still be a really compelling healthcare. And so that's like when you into economics and the customer experience, business, everything is to overlap for that to happen. Would you say this is like a three-sided marketplace in a way kind of thing because you're like tackling the patient problem, you're tra- tackling the provider problem, and then you have the insurers also, right? Who did you first go after? Yeah, that's actually a great question because so sometimes when, when people think about minimum viable products or lean startup, they think about only like just launching something in two weeks. But when you do healthcare, as I mentioned, you cannot just launch something you know, like how fast and launch without that. But that said, we still got really crazy about so what is the order of things that we had to prove? The first thing we had to prove was that by using this really technology-driven healthcare experience, we can create a much better customer experience for patients. That was the first thing to be up, right? To prove. The second thing to thing to prove was we can do this while still maintaining a really good kind of day, like work schedule for the clinical staff so that they have to be also be happy because there are finite number of clinicians. If you're not better at hiring them than other people, you're not going to be able to grow anyways, right? That was the second one. And the third thing was prove that you can do this with the unit economics that actually would make it easy so to be in network with every insurance company. Those are really specific orders because like, if number one did not work, number two and three wouldn't make like matter at all. If number two didn't work, number three would still not matter. So we just had to put them in, in that order. So what we did is like we first built the end-to-end customer experience in the patient side, but our provider side was really rudimentary in the beginning. It was relatively kind of unbaked, unfinished, but it was fine. We kind of hired the, the physicians. We told them that like we'll improve your platform in the future, but. For now, just can you just, I know this is going to be a little harder than usual, but can you just get along with it and try to make things work while we're trying to build the, the provider side of the platform? But even with that, like, we essentially fake the backend with doctors doing more the work than what they would normally do just to make sure the, the patient front end was amazing. And then once we finished the figure this out, the next year, we spent a lot of time optimizing the doctor's workflow. So we made that work. And then we first started, we did not even have insurance contracts. 
And also issue billing is a very complex piece of operations. So it's complex in terms of work, but it's not rocket science. Like it is things that you can do when you have enough resources, but it, it, it is really what is time consuming regardless. So we do not really want to spend any of our time dealing with issue billing kind of problems, because again, like it can be a huge time sink for a small company. So our solution was, this is gonna sound crazy, but like we, in the first year, we actually sold all the patients for free. They didn't know it was free. Like we were actually collecting insurance as because we didn't want to pitch to them that free healthcare is not going to work in the long run. We just acted like they are going to charge their insurance, but we did not have the capabilities to charge insurance. So we're essentially like eating the cost of every visit. So we we're just kind of learning how to provide better care. So once we figured that out, then we just figured out how to then do the insurance billing so that like we don't have to eat the cost of every visit. And then eventually, like the operational things got optimized. So it was just like a step-by-step process to kind of prove each critical. Because you want to start with the more, the biggest risk is like you cannot improve the customer experience with technology. So we had to prove that first and then provide the workload and then you need to kind of use of the uh, overall planning. I want to get into uh, how AI and machine learning fits into all of this and how are you guys using it uh, to improve better customer or create better customer experiences. Yeah, so I'm glad you were asking because Carbon Health is one of the companies which actually leverage machine learning AI the most. And we actually don't like, it's not our branding. Like our branding is being like amazing healthcare. It's not that we are like gonna be an AI driven healthcare company but behind the scenes. So the first thing you, you might realize as a patient is when you book an appointment, Typically, there are all these questions that doctor would be asking you during the visit in the first five, 10 minutes of the visit. So we asked all of those questions to our to, to our bot, we call this carbon bot. Carbon bot asks all those questions to you and it takes all the answers and put it into our health worker system automatically. And the main advantage is there are two main advantages. One is like the doctor did not waste much of time like asking and inputting rules of the standard questions. But the second advantage is now we have all these things in heavily structured data form. So we can now use this data. So we have the data there. We also have the previous care platform that our doctors generated. We have the orders they generated. So essentially everything in carbon is as structured as humanly possible. So our missionary algorithms can now do multiple things. For example, they can predict how long the appointment is going to be based on all the information we collect. So if you, for example, say, uh, you are booking an appointment for a, a sinus infection. And let's say you're a 22 year old person, don't have really any kind of major issues. And from the answers you gave, gave about your sinus infection, nothing is really alarming. Your visit might really very well be like five minutes at all. Right? So you don't really need anything more than five, 10 minutes with the doctor. So that might be very fast. But imagine the same visit, you are still sinus infection, but you're a seven year old person with several several kind of chronic conditions and you've not been in the clinic for the last 12 months, uh, you have some multiple medications. And then when you say sinus pain, like you might have told that, like you are also coughing really bad. There's some other things that kind of, like maybe let's say you have confusion, right? you're like you're like double vision these days, right? So like all of a sudden that makes the really, first of all, high risk uh, sinus pain issue, but also you have chronic conditions. So you will likely want to refill your medications today. And you'll likely, because you're not come to doctor in the last 15 months, like you, you might have other issues that you bring up during the visit. So essentially this might end up becoming like 67 minute visit interaction with doctor with a lot of complex diagnostics. So 
uh, essentially our machine learning system is the, like the one connecting all of this. We actually predict a lot of these things like how long is going to is the appointment going to be? What kind of prep, what kind of diagnosis orders are we going to make? Does the patient have to go to ER immediately? So all these things actually we learn from existing data and we automate it, and that's like a big part of how why, how we make things efficient. So what I'm hearing here is start with the customer, identify all the manual breakpoints, frustrating pieces of their experience, and remove that piece by piece. And technology, particularly AI, machine learning, are great ways to automate a lot of that friction. And you'll be on your path to delivering a better customer experience. But it all starts with the yeah. customer. Um, I, I would just add one more thing. Honestly. It's those customer problems, like identifying what problems there are first. And second thing you have to do is a big part of the investment goes to just having high quality data about the problems you are trying to solve. For example, if we did not have the platform that tracks every business, we, did, we wouldn't even know how long the historical business were. Like essentially a lot of the investment initially was, like I said, workflow platform, which knows exactly how long each appointment took know how long, what type of diagnosis orders we did for every visit. So if it's not had the data cleared, data quality, you couldn't really build machine learning. Because reality is, if your input-output data is really clear and structured and like dense into the attributes, it's really not that hard to build a machine learning model that kind of connects everything. Definitely, I'm getting some questions here on what AI and deep learning tools do you recommend? Or is that too nitty-gritty for this conversation? Yeah, uh, like our engineering team makes uh, final choices there, but I think like Spark is the one they use uh, the most. So um, we're not using any neural networks yet. So like I might co-founder CTO is looking at neural networks. It's not so far we haven't used them, but if you want to use them, like there are different solutions for that. But like Spark has been the probably the the kind of key. Awesome. And none of this is possible. You said it right there that it's all dependent on the engineering team. So I want to dive into team and leadership. Yeah. Right? You've done this now a few times. Mm -hmm. For people starting a company today, how would yeah. you build your team? Who would be the first few people to bring on board to help mm -hmm. get you uh, to the next step from product yeah. market fit to scale? I think it, it goes back to kind of the ordering I mentioned. You have to figure out like, so every business have a bunch of open questions. Like each open question is the kind of risk item. And you have to first decide how, at what order are you going to de-risk de those things? And based on what you're going to risk at this point, you have to focus on different hires. So as an example, so a lot of, for example, people just kind of overgeneralize this idea that you should not focus on revenue in the early days. That's a very common advice you'll hear because you know that Facebook did not monetize for like so many years, but then once they monetize, it became like a massive business. So I think the, the people overgeneralize this. Like the, the, the reason it makes sense for Facebook not to worry about monetization is Facebook's monetization is very obvious. It's just advertising. Advertising has been done like so many times before. Once you have eyeballs, it's very obvious that you can you can monetize it through like advertising. Because it's so obvious, so straightforward, like it's okay to delay that question to much later in the company, much later in the company's life cycle. But if your problem, if your business actually heavily relies on this kind of unclear huge economics, then you have to prove those things as soon as possible. For example, if you're a movie subscription play, you charge somebody a monthly subscription fee, and then you allow them to just see as many movies as they want. Like now all of a sudden, there's a pretty obvious risk. On, does, the, does the math work here? Is that the first thing you have to just, you have to just start monetizing as soon as possible so you, have to, so you can make, like, prove that the math actually does work. 
So it's just really about, about the, you always want very strong kind of engineering product design, like kind of people. That's always the first, like first starting point. In my case, I'm also an engineer product person myself. So we hired a couple of really, really strong people. And then I think that the first team was literally, it was actually funny, it was me as a co-founder entrepreneur, one very strong engineer, one very strong designer, one very strong physician. That was really the founding team. So we started with that. Then we hired an amazing, very well-experienced nurse with, who understood the hospitality part of healthcare delivery. So she had worked at a lot of concierge care companies. So she understood how to build a really high-quality in-person kind of experience. So she was really instrumental. We hired people who understand the mar- the, the branding. So again, it, it depends on again, like what risk you want to risk uh, at what time. Like the hardest thing to do is find good people. Any yeah. hacks along the way running few companies? How do you find these people? Sure. I think the biggest, the most critical one is understanding that hiring is an arbitrage game. Right? So there's definitely the engine, like the Uber engineer who has a lot of experience, who went to Stanford CS. Like that engineer is a very obvious engineer. So because it's very obvious, every single company on earth would love to hire that person. So in that case, like you're competitive, like you don't really have a competitive edge hiring that person over companies who are willing to pay five times uh, what you are willing to pay. And maybe it has like just more things. So the hiring is all about like, who are the kind of, who are, what, what, where can you find skill set which is going to underappreciate them? So if you did me, I heard a ton of people from Turkey because I'm from Turkey and like Turkey is like a very strong young population, extremely smart engineers. Like I was one of them, but there were very, almost no companies hiring. There were no Silicon Valley companies hiring in Turkey. So that was a really obvious competitive edge. We hired a ton of great engineers from Turkey. And then these is now there are maybe like five, 10 companies you compete with even in Turkey because you'll realize it's like a huge pool of really high quality engineers there. So I think similarly, you just need to find pockets of really strong engineers. Like, Sometimes there's amazing engineers, but they haven't gone to Stanford. They haven't worked Silicon Valley, like, but they, you can identify them because they, they contribute to an open source project, right? And they are very sharp from their code, but then they don't have the, the traditional background. So you essentially want to find those kind of gems that most other companies, like that most other companies would not be able to see. And usually one of the best tricks is just go to where you came from, like go to your university, go to your hometown, go find places. Go find like people who you can get one-on-one feedback from, but is not gonna does not necessarily have a very kind of polished resume. Yeah, because LinkedIn outreach is getting oversaturated. I like the concept of looking at who's contributing to open source projects. That's great, and of course, going back to your hometown. I think I might ping you after uh, to look at building a dev team, <laughs> hiring some developers in Turkey. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, one of the one of the tools that worked well for us was a uh, triple byte. Yeah, uh, so I think TripleWide worked like decently. It's not it's a hit and miss like any other kind of, when you don't know the person you're hiring, there's always going to be like some success rate. But like the advantage was that it was, it, it, it works a lot of people who don't have very strong resumes necessarily, but might be great engineers. So uh, that was one of the kind of tools we, we leveraged pretty well. Awesome. Was most of the dev work uh, in at Udemy and Carbon done in Turkey, or has it been a combination of things? At Udemy, it was mostly Turkey, and then we uh, like moved uh, some of the team to uh, San Francisco. 
And that was because we had raised a lot less money. So that was one of the, the bottlenecks there. At Carbon, it has so far been all like San Francisco based. But it lost like since the pandemic started, we decided to hire people outside the Bay Area as well. So our team is now going to kind of all remote, remote setup. So now we are actually hiring people in Turkey and other countries as well. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, because I feel like, I guess you guys have raised a lot of money, almost 200 million or, or so. But like when you're a younger company in the Bay Area, it's hard to have people stick around, right? Like they, they leave after two years if you've not raised another round of funding at an up round because they're like, what is the opportunity cost of my stock options? Yeah, exactly. Look, I think at the end of the day, like getting engineers is, or like designers, any kind of like product person is is similar work with fundraising. If you look at my time, like company is almost a thousand people a company right now. There are a ton of like operations, HR stuff you have to deal with. But still, the, the majority of my time is spent between fundraising and hiring. Those are the two things I spend like 80, 90% of my time. And, and that is, I think it summarizes it. As a CEO, you're effectively evangelizing the company and, and to investors, to customers, yeah. and, and to em, potential uh, employees and team members. Right. It's not just like, I'm not just talking about hiring like still executives. I'm actually like still involved in hiring like designers, engineers, like any in-demand scale, I'm in the interview list just to be able to attract that candidate. So I just told people like, if there's somebody you want to, you need to attract, like I, I'm here to help. So, and they use me. I've done like three interviews this morning. Wow. So if they basically really love a candidate, they want them evangelized, there's no better voice than one of the founders. Exactly. So like I, that's like still 30, 40% of my time easily. Interesting. Yeah, because people make the whole thing go around, right? Like without yeah. people, you don't really have a business on either end, customers or team members. So that yeah. said, you said you have a thousand people here. How do yeah. you make sure everyone on your team is well aligned with the broader company <laughs> strategy and goals? Like, how do you basically train people to make better decisions when you're not in the room? I think that this is what I'm learning on scale right now because you did not have thousand people when I was there. So in the early days, it was easy, right? So we, you just had to set up some values and you had to really champion them. So at Carbon, for example, I actually dropped the values before we, I even started the company. So the, the first one, the values ideally are, are not just like things that everyone would say yes to without a question. If your values are like integrity, honesty, like uh, hard work, like just the, those are just like bland, like just everybody would, could say they have. Nobody would say, so your values ideally, like you you start a lot more like specific to you. So like the, for, for me, the critical things was one, pretend karma exists. So essentially the idea that sometimes you don't even know what the right strategy is. Sometimes you don't know what's about a commercial idea, but doing the principal thing, the right thing to do consistently will reward you a lot more than any kind of business calculation. That's one of the key kind of key philosophies of carbon is really you don't need to calculate every, every move. This is not the super chest. Sometimes you just do the right thing consistently, and then you, it, it comes back to you like a hundredfold. So every person who just carbon in the early days was really like, when people talk to me, they realize that's a good strategy. They're not, I'm not asking them to just put like data behind every decision. So, and similarly, we're like respecting the cross is very critical at carbon and, and, and hiring people who genuinely care about the problems you're trying to solve, like those are very, kind of very critical. So it's, it's first important that you have a very authentic very specific 
DNA that is not really something that every other company is going to align with. So we are, for example, very intentionally not data-driven. Like Carbon, Udemy was a very data-driven business. Carbon is far more into design-driven than data-driven. Uh, so, so I think setting those laws up is great, like great, and you have to talk about them. You have to just get everybody to onboard with those ideas early days, which I have done successfully. But I think as you go from a couple hundred people to thousands of people, you have to do a transition. Now, now like the, the videos in your head is no longer like uh, enough. So you have to just, now I'm turning this on, these ideas into writing. So I have, this actually one of the interesting uh, hacks for if somebody has a scaling company, so I have a writing coach. So we meet once or twice a week. So we sit down together and we write together. It's actually kind of making the regular application forces me to write because otherwise I always want to write something, but I get busy and just procrastinate. But like when you have somebody else that you are hiring to do help you, so you have to do and convert what I have in my head into kind of actual text and words. And then we may later make illustrations about them. So I think the type of like writing is as you're scaling, writing is probably the biggest leadership skill you have to gain and hiring a writing coach is a really good idea. I never thought of that, actually. I hate writing too, personally, and I have a lot of content just sitting there on the back burner and you procrastinate on it. It's not in your head. I should look at getting a writing coach. Do you have a business coach at all? I, I, I received a lot of coaching in the parts of the, my life. Like at Udemy, for example, I still have a heavy, especially in the early days of Udemy, I had a very heavy accent. So I, had, I took accent coaching, communications coaching. These days I'm taking media coaching as well. So if I go on, like I speak fast, so like they have to train me to speak more slowly, speak in sound bites. If you are doing a five minute like uh, broadcast interview, it's very different than talking to in a casual manner like this. So, uh, so I, whenever I'm like not good at something and it, it makes sense to hire someone to help, like I always go for it. Definitely. I want to take the last few things in sort of rapid fire fashion. One is what is your biggest fear as a leader? I think my biggest fear is like, as the company becomes larger, having this disconnect between your people in the on the ground and your like executive team. Because when you were like 20% people, like I, I talk to everybody like in a daily basis, and now I can no longer meet like everybody or even know their name. So just like, like having this culture disconnect is the biggest, uh, my biggest fear. And we are trying to be very proactive about making sure that it never happens. Yeah, it's, a, it's important to give uh, sort of align people with the mission and the metrics and at the same time, give them the autonomy and responsibility so they're executing when you're not there. Key skills all entrepreneurs need to have, like your top three or five. Yeah, I, I think number one is you have to, you have to be able to see ahead of the curve a little bit, but also be realistic in doing this. Like sometimes when I say being ahead of the curve, what most people understand is just suggested everything is going to be replaced with AI and everything is going to VR and AR. And so saying those stuff like that's, that's cheap, that's easy, but you have to understand what you have to be able to say is in two, three, in three years, this type of AI is going to replace X part of that. And this type of companies will appear like the business model will be shift that way. So you have to essentially see what, what is like next six months later, one year later, and very much in a lot of details. It's not about telling what's going to happen 20 years later. It's about what's going to happen like one, two, three years later in a lot of accuracy. That's really what you have to do. So one thing you have to do, be good at is like really managing stress. So no matter what you're doing, like taking responsibility, like has a toll on you. So I think not everybody's 
well set up to be able to can work under stress like that. So you have to be able to build a practice working under stress and not losing it. Right? So, and I think lastly, you just need to you just need to be able to, right? So I think like almost all the good founders are like builders in nature. So you have to just understand like how to go from nothing to something. Because that's, that's really what most of what you most of what your job is like taking something which hasn't happened before and is having an idea about what the first version of that looks like. So that's a critical skill. Yeah. So in, in summary, I think looking into the future, but like uh, more granularly rather than high level and being able to map it today and get the steps there and then inherent passion for building. In general, I think if you're not passionate about your craft, it all becomes a job. And that differentiates from a nine to five to like wanting to do this for lifetime kind of thing, right? Like, like Michael Jackson found his passion and a lot of entrepreneurs found, find their passion. You found your passion in healthcare. What are your book recommendations? Any favorite books? Yeah, so this is, okay, like, uh, I should refresh my memories. I do, so, um, I think one book I read a long time ago, but it's still gonna, I reference is like Good to Great and Crossing the Chasm. Like those are like definitely, those are like timeless books about business. That I definitely, I think zero, in the, I'm, I'm starting with the, the technology like startup books. Like I think zero to one is still a, a great book, despite even if you disagree with parts of that. The Hard Things About Hard Things uh, from Ben Horowitz was a great book. In the healthcare space, I like The Patient Will See You Now. That's a great book. Uh, I actually read a lot of, like, I, I read a book about like how to be a nurse and how to be a medical coder. Like, I actually sometimes like, enjoy reading like how to books because it gives you a sense of what the like the fundamental skills are for different jobs. And I think there's a book called The Autistic Brain, which is like very fascinating. Even if you don't have no interest in like autism or any of those subjects, it gives you a different lens of like how your brain works. This has been great advice. Uh, yeah. Thank you for joining us. I learned a ton and uh, it's always good chatting with fellow immigrant founders who are absolutely killing it and you're also giving back a lot to the community through events like this and angel investing wishing you all the best i am looking forward to buying the stock at the ipo <laughs> i need some traction you thank you for listening traction. and we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the traction podcast if you enjoyed the show please leave us a five-star review and you can find more information and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at boast.ai. That's B-O-A-S-T dot A-I forward slash blog.